today's episode, we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 40. Children loved by God, we've arrived at the very last chapter of Exodus. The tabernacle, its furnishings, and all the accoutrements required for worship have been constructed. Now God directs Moses to set it all up according to his divinely revealed plan. Now, as the chapter ends, the glory of God fills the tabernacle, signifying that it is holy ground where he dwells among his people. Good morning and blessed Epiphany Tide. Today is January 19th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. When you get a moment, show some love to our underwriter, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Go online and learn more about their translating and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. They really do great work for the kingdom. Well, as I mentioned just a moment ago, we are beginning our study of the uh, book of Exodus but the end of it, right? We're closing it out, I guess I should say. And to help us in our discussion this morning, I'm pleased to welcome to the show the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer, pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, pastor, I took a pause there because I wasn't sure if I got your last name right or not. I practiced before the show. Um, remind me again. So it's Ketchelmeyer, correct? Well, yeah, it, it, so that's a southwestern New Mexican version of it, Catchelmeyer. Yeah, Catchelmeyer. It's a Cocklemeyer, but yeah, Catchel. <laughs> Catchel. Well, good. <laughs> well, you are you are no stranger to Thy Strong Word. You've been on with uh, some of the previous hosts. First time on with me, so I'm excited to have you. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in since I've joined, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your parish and what's going on. Yeah, so uh, of course uh, I, I've done stuff on the issues etc. Uh, program before. Uh, we've done a lot of Christ in the Old Testament in the past, and so that's kind of my passion. Uh, of course, I, I, I wrote the book uh, "Reading Isaiah with Luther" for CPH, which is basically uh, looking at Luther, looking at Isaiah, and me putting it all together. So that was kind of the idea there. But uh, my passion is really the Old Testament and just looking at the Old Testament where we can see Christ, uh, not only promised, but also present. And that's what we'll see here in Exodus chapter 40. Uh, I graduated from uh, the Fort Wayne Seminary, Concordia Theological Seminary in 2005. And then I, uh, I, I completed a doctor of ministry uh, from uh, the Fort Wayne Seminary in 2021. So uh, that's where we are right now. Excellent. Wonderful. So yeah, reading Isaiah with Luther. Now that's fairly recent, correct? When did that come out? Uh, somewhere around like 2017-ish, if I recall. Okay. Somewhere around there. Yeah. Yeah. In the grand scheme of things with books, that's pretty recent. So yeah, folks, check that out. I'm looking at it right now online uh, at cph.org. Uh, so yeah, pick that up for sure. Well, I'm, I'm glad working to on a new one too, though. I'm working oh, on. Oh no! New what are you working process. on now? Can you talk about it? Well, creation and redemption with CPH. So I, I'm Excellent. in the process. That one's in the process. Well, that's great. I look forward to that too. So, um, all right. Well, I, it, we'll get started today. It sounds like you have a lot to bring to the table. But why don't we begin with a word of prayer? If you'll join, if you'll lead us in prayer, please. Oh, <laughs> I'll join and lead at the same time. Very good. Let us pray. Uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we give thanks to you through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you've given to us the gift of yet another day. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of life and the gift of eternal life. 
We thank you for the gift of your written word so that we can be certain and sure of all of your promises that you give to us, you declare to us, that are all fulfilled in your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Send your Holy Spirit upon our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word, and especially we would set our eyes upon Jesus, your Son. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said earlier, we're at the very last chapter in the book of Exodus. It's been an, a really enlightening past three months as we've gone through this uh, chapter by chapter. We've encountered so many wonderful things, amazing acts of God, uh, unfaithfulness on the part of the people, but steadfast love and faithfulness on the part of God. But now all of that has come to what is happening today, right? It's all coming together in the end. The tabernacle is going to be erected. Uh, before we read any of the text, brother, uh, would you like to set the stage, maybe catch people up with where we've been and how we got where we are today? Well, this has been a journey uh, through the whole book of Exodus, you know, going all the way back to chapter one. That's where we we ended uh, from Genesis, where you have Joseph going down into Egypt, bringing the family down into Egypt because of the famine. And of course, what happens is a Pharaoh arises who has forgotten Joseph uh, and the, the sons of, of Israel. And you get all of that slavery, captivity. You get the harsh affliction and the suffering of the people of God. And of course, they cry out to Yahweh, and Yahweh comes down. And so whenever we see this imagery of Yahweh coming down from heaven, that he knows his people's suffering, that he's there firsthand to see what is taking place, this is all incarnational language. So this is Yahweh interacting in his creation to bring salvation. And of course, we then see that with the sending forth of Moses, a child, which of course is the picture of the Christ child that we're waiting to be the deliverer who would deliver us from death and sin and the devil. Well, Moses, the, the baby boy, is of course the one who will take the people out of Egypt and that slavery under a Pharaoh and lead them into the promised land. And so Moses becomes that prophet, the prophet par excellence, the one who is kind of the prophet of all prophets, but yet he's not the greatest. He's he's just kind of like a, a, a type or a picture of one who is even greater than Moses, which of course is Jesus. So whenever God sends forth the prophets, we always see that sending forth of the Son by the Father. The Word of God, that's the second person of the Holy Trinity, is the spokesman of the Holy Trinity. He's the one who speaks. He is the messenger. He is the message. He's the one who comes to deliver his people. And of course, he's the one who comes to Moses in the burning bush. And he technically is the one who leads the people out of Egypt. And in that process, what you will see is the man Moses acting. But we know behind that, of course, is God himself. God who is with his people to dwell. And throughout the book of Exodus, you have this kind of the struggle and this wrestle of being servants to Pharaoh, but being freed from this captivity to be servants of Yahweh. And so it's not a freedom to sin, but it's a freedom in Yahweh's presence and assurance of the promise of that Christ child that would be born in Bethlehem and would be crucified in Jerusalem. And so it's that promised presence of God taking his people out of Egypt in a foreign land back to the promised land, that land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that land where you would have the incarnate one who would be born and that incarnate one who would go back into the ground 
uh, bound to the ground as we all are in humanity, but would come out of the dust of the ground in the tomb, and he would bring forth this whole new age, uh, the whole new creation, and he would bring forth this hope of the bodily resurrection. So that hope of going back to the promised land is always being a uh, that hope of being a participant in that bodily resurrection. And so when you have the land parceled off back where the land of promises, the one who is promised to come to deliver us from death, that is that it's like a sacrament. It's something that's a tangible, something that's visible, that's attached to God's word of promise of this bodily resurrection in the new creation through the incarnation. But in that process, of course, you have the, the Israelites still kind of tied to the ways of the world in worship. And you're going to have that struggle in Egypt, coming out of Egypt, always that tendency to worship without God's word, which of course is idolatry. Idolatry is any kind of a man-made system of trying to make God merciful. But we know from the scripture, you cannot make God merciful. God is is merciful. And so God, in his mercy, sent forth his son to deliver us. And this is going to be that kind of that conflict you'll have with Aaron when Moses is up at the top of Mount Sinai. Moses is being given the instructions by God, the institutions of worship that is pleasing to God, that promises his presence, that God is going to put into place where people can be certain that God is present for their benefit. Moses is giving, being given the designs of the whole tabernacle, but yet down at the base of the mountain, the people become very anxious and impatient, and they go to Aaron and they say, Aaron, do something. We don't know where Moses is, you make something for us so that we can be sure that God is present with us. And so, of course, the contrast is Aaron in the ways of the world without God's word, but the imagination of his own heart puts forth that image of the golden calf. And so then Aaron, he says, poof, you know, you just put in the gold and out came the image. Well, I mean, there's more to it than that. I mean, what he's doing is just worshiping in the way of the world. And that idea of that image of the golden calf is supposed to be something visible, tangible, where the invisible reality of God is present that you can't see. Now, of course, that's going to be contrasted with the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant that God himself has instituted. So here you have the contrast between Aaron trying to worship God and assure the people of God's presence without God's word, and Moses on the top of Mount Sinai receiving God's word, where God is giving us the certainty of his promised presence. And it's not going to be at the golden calf, the image of the imagination of Aaron. Instead, it's going to be at the ark of the covenant or the ark of the testimony, at that mercy seat where God dwells there like a throne. I mean, so when you contrast the two, the idea of the golden calf is basically like a throne or a chair. So it'd be like a chair sitting there, and what's on top of the chair would be the invisible deity. The contrast is the Ark of the Covenant, which is also a chair or a throne, and on top of the wings of the cherubim, that's going to be where the invisible presence of God is promised with God's word. And so this is the contrast of the two different ways in which you access God's mercy either with God's word or without God's word. And without God's word, it's idolatry. And so what we have at the end of the whole entire book of Exodus here in chapter 40 is kind of the culmination of now we put this all together, we're back on the right path. Now we have the instituted way of worship 
with God's word so we can be certain and sure that God is present. He promises to be present for the forgiveness of our sins, for uh, his holiness being bestowed upon us, that we would be his holy people. So this is how the whole book ends on the note where you have the word of God and you have that worship that is instituted and promised with God's word comes to the end here at Exodus chapter 40. Excellent. Well, that's a pretty good summary. In fact, we could have saved three months of episodes. We should have just had you on, right? You could have covered it in 10 minutes. No, we appreciate that. Yeah. So very, very succinct and amazing summary because, I mean, this is what it's about. It's about God dwelling amongst his people, but wanting them to worship him, but only in the ways that he has designated. And we see him, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree, but as I look back, you see him, uh, let's see, condescending to them is one word. Also, in some ways, accommodating to their expectations of what it means to worship a God. Uh, for instance, the the Ark of the Covenant, very similar to some of the things you would find like in uh, Tutankhamun's tomb and other other uh, other places in Egypt where high priests would have done certain things that we kind of see that happening even within the way that God is setting up his worship practices uh, because he reuses and re-sanctifies things, things that they're familiar with. At the same time, when they on their own come up with ways to worship God or make him merciful, as you said – um, it's very self-serving. It's it's trying to do something for God instead of really being connected to what he's doing for them. And so up to this point, we've seen um, all of this disobedience. But what I've really felt over the past few weeks, really, as we've been covering specifically the instructions for uh, designing the tabernacle and its surroundings and furnishings, as well as then collecting all of the things necessary to construct it, and now we're going to see it actually constructed, there seems to be this, this I don't want to say test, but there's also this expectation from God that this is a means through which you're going to demonstrate that you are going to be faithful because you're going to do this according to the very specific instructions that I've given you. And when we come to 40, so far a lot of people have been involved master craftsmen even all the people in their donations for the for the gold and all the, the the silver and the cloth that's needed to put the stuff together but now when it's all time to put it all together Moses has to do it and Moses has to do it because well he was the one on Mount Sinai he's the one who actually saw the plans so to speak he was the one who was given the specific design so now he has to actually bring it all together in the end. Um, so I look forward to kind of seeing how we can connect that to what God's doing with them then and there, but also how he works with us today. Um, anything else before I read some of the text? Well, I, I think just to comment on that, you know, you, you talk about similarities with other uh, worldly ways of worshiping. This is always going to be the temptation. The temptation is always to worship in the way of the world. And this is where we need to make a clear distinction between what idolatry truly is and this kind of false understanding of, of idolatry is just merely the worship of a statue. Uh, idolatry is not worship of a statue. 
I mean, we need to be clear on that. Uh, the prophets will mock the, the worship of the world because it doesn't have God's word. And so they mock and say, you don't have anything there, like that golden calf. I mean, God is not there present for your good. So in essence, all you have is a golden calf. And so in essence, all you are actually worshiping is the fallen creation and not the creator. And so we, we when we talk about idolatry, I, I think that it's most helpful to understand that an idol is a false image. It is a false image of who God is. It comes from the imagination of the heart. So we want to make a connection between that, the corrupted heart with its false imagination, what the heart wants God to be like, what the heart thinks God's like, what the heart thinks that God wants or wills, or what pleases God. But of course, the problem with the corrupted heart is what you think God is like is what you are like. So God originally made us in his image and likeness, but after the fall into sin, what humanity does is enemies of God, we constantly make God in our own fallen image. So we want a domesticated deity. We want a God who does what we say. We want a God who likes what we like. And so that's always going to be the issue. And so a false worship is a, a false image. It's a false imagination. So the contrast here is always going to be that you have God's word where we can be certain and sure what is pleasing to God, where his promise is with his institution. I mean, we carry this over to the New Testament, of course, with baptism instituted by God that has the promises, the promise of being renewed, regenerated, of having the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, of being united into the death and resurrection of Christ, or in the Lord's Supper, instituted by God with the promise of receiving the very body and blood of Christ. Uh, for our life and for the forgiveness of sins. And there's always going to be a temptation to worship in a different means, uh, another means that's not the instituted means of grace by God, and say, well, if I go do this, which I like to do, that's what's going to be pleasing to God. And that's where we got to make the connection between what was going on in the Old Testament and what continues to happen in our day. And when we have this crass idea that they were just so dumb in ancient times that they actually worshiped stones and sticks and and uh, uh, idols that were just carved or uh, that were just molded and shaped. I mean, that, that's a crass idea. It, it's not like they were just so dumb that they thought that. It's they had the same temptation that we do. We have the temptation to worship God in the way we want to worship, and we try to make God merciful by our own actions, our own deeds. But mercy does not come through our, our deeds. I mean, we cannot be justified by our works. We are justified through faith alone in the work of God. God is the one who justifies us. We cannot justify ourselves and make ourselves righteous by our own acts. So, I mean, that's going to be the contrast. And when we get to the Ark of the Testimony, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the contrast of what the Ark of the Testimony is. When it comes to idolatry, I'm really glad that you made this, uh, this clear because we see idolatry as being, well, one of the biggest issues today, as I'm sure it has always been, but people want to recreate God or imagine God or worship the God that is the one that they imagine, the one the domestication of transcendence idea, right? So we bring God down. We kind of make Jesus our buddy. We don't have to worry about anything. Ah, he'll forgive us. Don't worry about it. Uh, and then we also have this just sort of denial of God's existence, which has also always been around. But in this day and age is so prominent and people um, are, are really having a voice to try to actively 
proclaim against God, which I think is fascinating to be very upset with somebody you don't think exists. Um, you think that idea too, where people are denying God is also idolatry? I mean, they're not necessarily taking God and recreating him in the image they want. They're just denying his existence altogether. Is that also idolatry? Well, I think it is, and I think it's very helpful when we understand how Luther defines a god in the large catechism, when he's talking about the first commandment, you know, you shall have no other gods. Well, Luther defines what's a god. A god is either A, what we run to in our time of trouble, or B, what we look to for our greatest good and blessing. And so anybody who denies the existence of God still has a God, that which they look to in the time of trouble or that which they find their greatest uh, joy. I mean, so that's still a God. It's just that they're denying the God who is the living God who gives us the gift of his word. And that's what's going to be so significant here again in chapter 40, just at verse one, when it opens up, we're, we're talking about God speaking. So Yahweh speaks to Moses and he says, so we have the word of God spoken to Moses. And of course, it is the second person of the Holy Trinity who is speaking to Moses. And he's the one who is present there as the messenger of the Holy Trinity, the spokesman of the Holy Trinity, giving Moses the clear word so that now Moses has that word directly from God, and then Moses gives that to the people because Moses is that prophet that God himself has called up and sent. Moses is that mediator between God and the people, and you see this throughout the, the book of Exodus and in the Numbers and the Deuteronomy also. And Moses is the one who is given the gift of God's word for the blessing of God's people with that word, and then Moses is the one who writes it down for posterity's sake, so that after the death of Moses, you can be certain and sure you are still listening to that same word that Moses received from God. So that's always going to be the key here is that written scripture, which gives us the confidence that we have what God himself has given us and God has revealed to us that makes, uh, makes us right, reconciles with God, assuring us of his presence and of his uh, holiness and forgiveness. Well, why don't we get into the text a little bit? Uh, this chapter uh, can be divided uh, about three different ways. We could probably do the first 15 or 16 verses and then the second half and then right at the end, just about four verses. So I'm going to read through verse 16, I believe. Let's go. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony. And you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water, and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him, and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also, and put coats on them, 
and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that Yahweh commanded him, so he did. Okay, so there we go. We have maybe the first uh, third or so of what we'll be reading today. Uh, And it's interesting to me, what stands out is that while Aaron and his sons will be the high priest and priest respectively, uh, this anointing kind of thing, that's their job, but they can't yet do it. So Moses uh, anoints them first. So we see here Moses putting the stuff together and he also anoints all of the things and the people for service to the Lord. Take us through this, brother. Well, first of all, let's look again at the bracketing. I mean, notice how we started at verse one with Yahweh speaking to Moses. So Yahweh speaks to Moses. So Moses has the word. This is the second person of the Holy Trinity who is there present speaking to Moses as the spokesman of the Holy Trinity. And then the bracket ends on the note uh, where you ended at verse 16, this Moses did according to all that Yahweh commanded him. So you have this completion of God giving the word, and then Moses takes that word and he initiates, he institutes, puts this whole way of worship according to God's word in into place. I mean, so this is very key. That's the contrast between what idolatry is and true worship. Uh, idolatry, again, is worship without God's word. And so here's the clear understanding that this is what is true worship. Uh, this is how we have access to God with his word, with his promise, the one that he gave to Moses. And when you talk about this, uh, this transferring from Moses as the prophet, So look at it this way. You see Moses as the spokesman, okay, who's now speaking on behalf of God to the people in a a role as a mediator, speaking before the people for God. And Moses is the one giving that word from heaven to the people. So you have the word that is being proclaimed. And then at the same time, you have Aaron being anointed. And with that word that God himself gives Moses, that's what makes holy. So God's word makes holy. God himself is holy. And he makes this uh, a holy priesthood where Aaron is going to be the high priest. So now you have word and sacrament, if you will, this understanding of word and sacrament that carries over into the New Testament. You have the word of the prophet and the enacting of the sacraments, uh, the Old Testament sacraments, that is, of Aaron and the priesthood. Now, of course, Moses is a a depiction and a picture of the coming Christ who is greater than Moses. And likewise, Aaron as the high priest is a depiction of one who is greater that we're waiting for. I mean, Moses says this in Deuteronomy 18, that we're waiting for one greater than him. That's the one we're to listen to. And when you have Aaron here now as the high priest, we're waiting for one who is a greater high priest, which is Jesus himself also. So you have this understanding of Jesus being both a prophet and priest here, that Jesus is the one who comes to make things holy because Jesus alone is the holy one. So understand that that you not only have the word, but you also have the sacrament. On Mount Sinai, when you have the Ten Commandments given, it's very clear that God did not just give a moral code and says, here's Ten uh, Commandments, and if you do these things, you shall live and uh, have at it. You know, your best life now, go for it. And so if you just had the Ten Commandments, well, then we would say, okay, this is some kind of a moralistic uh, religion. But in addition to the Ten Commandments, which is God's word revealing his will, for our lives, you also have Moses receiving the 
instructions on how this whole worship is going to take place, where we have the forgiveness of sins, where we have the promise of God's holiness, because we are not holy by nature. We are unholy. God is the one who makes us his holy people. And so this whole process here of putting this into place is God who is holy is dwelling with his people. I mean, you start off right at the beginning when you say the first day of the first month, this is the beginning of a new year. This is the beginning of a new cycle. It is the beginning of a new creation, if you will. This is a picture of what we are waiting for Christ to come to do, to bring the new creation. And Jesus does this as the firstborn from the dead. In that resurrection of the body, Jesus is the head. We are the body, the church, and we rise with Christ. He is the high priest, the true high priest, and we are the people of God. And so you have this new creation image right here here where God is enacting and putting into place the way in which he will be present with his people and the way in which his people will have access to him. And they are assured of his favor because of his word of promise. And so immediately you go from this this time period of the, the beginning of a new year pointing to a new creation by the incarnation of Jesus. You have God who is dwelling with his people and you have this tabernacle. This is going to be the place. This is going to be the location. And this is called the tent of meeting. This is the place where God will meet with his people. This is where God gathers his people with word and sacrament. This is where God is there in acting, and God is working through the means of grace that God himself has instituted, that God is assuring the people of God that they are his people, that they are holy, not because of what they have done, but because God is holy and God is the one who bestows it upon them. So this is the place where they will meet. And you'll notice that the place where they meet is not that that golden calf. I mean, that's when Aaron made the golden calf, he says, this is a feast to Yahweh. So Aaron wasn't so dumb that he actually thought, and the people weren't so dumb that they actually thought that that golden calf is what delivered them out of Egypt. They didn't think that. They knew the golden calf was just, it just was invented. It wasn't there taking them out of Egypt. But that was a, a form of worship where where Aaron was trying to to establish a system in which he was, out of his own imagination, trying to assure the people of God's presence. But that's worship without God's word. And so when you have the whole establishment now here with Aaron and his sons, it's kind of a, it's a restart. It's a, it's a, a new beginning here where now Aaron, who went AWOL, Aaron kind of went on his own trail uh, away from God's word. Now you put Aaron and you reinstitute Aaron in the priesthood and you put Aaron here in accordance with God's word to make sure everything is, is holy according to God's word. And with this idea of the Ark of the Covenant, or as we say it here, specifically the Ark of the Testimony. If you think of the ark, think of it as a box. Uh, think of it, because that's basically what it is. Think of it as a treasure chest or even kind of a, a, a memory box. I mean, some people might have a memory box from their childhood and they put some little tokens or some little souvenirs or some maybe uh, notes or cards or trophies or medals or something that they put in this box to remember things that happened in their childhood. Now, so think of this as a memory box. So this ark of the testimony is a testimony that God is the one who came to meet his people 
at Mount Sinai. It's a testimony that God is the one who is merciful. He's the living God, and he comes to dwell with his people. All pointed to the incarnation, God with us. And so it is the testimony of how God comes to make his people holy. Now, what do we learn later on? What will be put into this box, this treasure chest, if you will, is going to be these memories, the testimony of God interacting with his people. And so later on, you would open up the box and you would say, well, what's in the box? And you say, well, look, the Ten Commandments. And you say, oh, yeah, that was great. Remember when God met with us at Mount Sinai and uh, he gave us the Ten Commandments? But then, of course, you would recall, well, wait a second, this is the second edition. The, the first, uh, the first right. edition was broken because we broke the Ten Commandments. So every time you look at what's in the ark, it's a testimony of who God is and who the people are. So the people are the ones who broke the Ten Commandments, but yet God is the one who is merciful to them. God was the one who still promised to dwell with them. So that Ten Commandments was like a positive, negative thing. Like, oh yeah, oh no. And same thing when you go through and you say, oh yeah, the manna. Look, here's the manna. Remember when God provided the manna for us in the wilderness? And then you start to say, oh yeah, and we grumbled and complained. But yet God was still faithful to his word and his promise, and he still dwelt with us to make us holy. And you have the same thing with the the rod of Aaron, where it, it blooms into the, 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 uh, the almond blossoms. And that was Quran, the whole rebellion there, where now that's later on, where you have uh, relatives of Aaron saying, what makes Aaron and his sons so special that they can be priests? All these Levites could be priests. And so that was in accordance with a man-made word the imagination of the heart of Korah and that whole rebellion. And so that rod's there. Oh yeah, remember, God is the one who established Aaron as the high priest and his sons. But then it was like, oh yeah, and we also rebelled against that one too. But yet that's in the memory box. And what's on top of the memory box or this, this arc of the testimony of who God is, is you put the mercy seat. So you put a lid on it. So all these things that took place that testified to God interacting with his people in the way that people interact as a fallen creation is that you put the lid on it. And what's on top of that lid is the mercy seat. And that's where Christ dwells. That's where the pre-incarnate Christ is promised to be present like a throne. So he puts a lid on all of our transgressions. He is that mercy seat. He is the one who promises to dwell above the wings of the cherubim. He's the one that's there to assure us that he is king. He is a uh, king of the conscience. He's the king of the universe. He's the prince of peace. He's the one who comes to restore us. So, I mean, all of that is just right there with this is in accordance with God's word. So we can be certain and sure that we are good with God for the sake of Christ. So we're we're looking for this good word, and this good word comes from Moses, not from the imagination of our heart. And, and so when you look at the whole uh, system of everything put into place, of course, you, you can't help but you see the table with the, uh, the, the bread of the presence, the showbread. You have the lamps and the light. Uh, you have the, the altar itself. You have the wash basin with the water, which, of course, is pointing towards something greater that we have in the New Testament, that we have the sacrament of the altar the very body and blood of Christ, where Jesus promises to be present. And so you visibly see the bread and the wine, but under the cover of that, the holiness of God is there. It's concealed. And so all of this, this holiness of God is concealed with what you see with your eyes, but it's revealed with God's word.
So you have the word that teaches you to see with your ears. So you see with your ears, which you cannot see with your eyes. So all of this is set up. You get the water, just like in baptism, we call this holy baptism. And so with your eyes, it just looks like plain water, but with God's word, it is a washing of regeneration. That's what makes it holy. God's word makes holy. And so it's that word that makes these things holy, and it's concealing that holiness that you can't see, but it's revealing it because now you have the certainty of the word. And so all of this is set up for the benefit of the people so they can be sure that God is the one who took them out of Egypt. God is the one who is redeeming them, and he is going to take them into the promised land, and we wait for the Redeemer, which is Jesus. Well, brother, you've given us a lot to think about, and we will do that right now as we take a break. Folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Meyer and I will keep on going with Exodus chapter 40. We'll see you on the other side. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. And with me this morning is the Reverend Dr. Brian Kachelmeyer, pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Before we jump back into the text, I just want to remind you that if you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can direct them to me directly at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. I'm happy to receive your comments or answer your questions on or off the air. All right, Pastor Ketchelmeyer, before the break, uh, you were uh, elucidating for us all these wonderful connections to Christ and how how God has uh, come down to us and how, you know, and I really appreciate as I pondered during the break what you were saying. I was thinking just a little more about how, uh, and I know we're stepping back a bit by saying this, but how when, when they were worshiping the idol that they had created, and I think it's important that people do understand this, that it's not as though... Aaron was deceitfully trying to trick everybody into saying that this little piece of wood and metal uh, was what uh, you know brought them out of Egypt. But there, there is this understanding, and we did talk about it right here on the show when we were covering this section, about how even amongst the pagans, often these idols would serve as the, the throne or the stage upon which their God would dwell. So, so you know, it was this idea that, that Yahweh would be could dwell uh, upon this the back of this this calf, so to speak. Uh, so I think that is really important for people to understand because that is the way that I believe that a lot of temptation and Satan himself works in us today. You know, he he tries to acknowledge that which cannot be denied, things like the existence of God and his creative power and even Christ's activity. But then he wants those things to be then corrupted by our own human desire. Uh, is that so, somewhat kind of like what you were talking about? 
Yes, exactly. That thing, right? We're we're flowing down the same river on this. I mean, sure, yeah, sure. I mean, this is the thing: is that there's always going to be this temptation. I mean, you you go back to the Garden of Eden. I mean, so in the Garden of Eden, God gave His clear word: "You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." And of course, the devil slithers in and the old evil foe, and he tries to separate Eve and Adam from God, trying to separate them from that word of God. And as soon as they fall into that temptation, and then they fall into this sin, immediately what they try to do is they try to do something to make God merciful. They're trying to appease their own conscience that's guilty because they know that they stand condemned before God. And what they do, and this is something we, we want to be clear here, uh, is that uh, this this Hebrew word asa, this verb, asa is to do or to make. And so the first time asa is used where humanity is trying to make something, trying to do something to gain God's favor is when they make the fig leaves. So they're trying to make a covering, a clothing to try to cover over their sinfulness. They're trying to cover over their rebellion against God and trying to pretend like it didn't happen. So that's the first time that man is trying to make something, trying to do something to make God uh, out of their own imagination. And when we talk about idolatry, this is going to be the issue over and over again, that man is doing something, man is making something, and he's trying to make God merciful. And so when you get to this uh, verse where we ended with uh, verse 16, this Moses did, okay? This is the verb. This is a saw. This is to do, to make. So there's a contrast here between what Adam and Eve did when they tried to make amends and tried to make God merciful with their action of covering up their own sin, because they knew that they were naked. They were ashamed. They knew they couldn't stand before God's presence, so they hid. But this is what Moses is doing. This is what Moses is making. So it doubles down twice in this verse that it starts off and says, this Moses did, or shall we say made, and that it ends on uh, as the, the Lord commanded him, so he did, or so he made. That's according to God's word he did. He made something. Idolatry is making something without God's word doing something without God's word where you think that's going to make yourself righteous in God's sight. And something a little bit um, off track from that thought, I think, but but stated in the text, when, he, when he's talking about, in verses 9 and 10, when he's talking about um, anointing the tabernacle and consecrating all its furniture, and he, and he says, so that it may become holy. And then God says, you shall anoint the altar of burnt offerings and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. And, and I think that's kind of interesting because, you know, that altar is outside of what we would generally call the, the holy of holies, the most holy place in this setup. So this altar out where, where the people who touch it become holy um, – do you know have any insight into why it's it's sort of characterized as most holy here? Well, so the, the key we're going to have here is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so that's why all these pagan cultures are trying to enact some kind of a sacrificial system. They're, they're trying to, to bring forth death 
to appease uh, the wrath of whatever deity that they are imagining, because they know that sin provokes God to anger. And so you're going to have some kind of sacrificial system. So here, it, it, the devil always likes to mimic what God does to tempt people and trick people away into their own uh, styles of worship, to worship in the ways of the contemporaries, right? But uh, what, what God is doing here is you need that altar, because you need the shedding of blood. Now, later on, when you actually have the, uh, when you put this into place uh, with Leviticus and you you get this whole, uh, you know, you, you're now going to start using this, this whole system here is that the fire from God will come from the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. And so it's that fire that will come from God, from the Holy of Holies, from the Ark of the Testimony, and it is the fire that will ignite that altar. And so that was the whole issue with Aaron's sons and trying to bring a strange fire, uh, a fire that was not from God, uh, a fire that was, hey, well, this fire over here, this should work. I and mean, that's the imagination of my own heart that I think. I, I imagine that, sure, God would be pleased with this fire. But the, the word is clear that it's it's going to be the fire from God. So it's, it's that God fire himself that ignites the altar, and that flame there is from God. And so God alone is holy. His word makes holy. And so you have this whole understanding of the altar there because you need the atonement. You need the whole sacrificial death of Jesus, the all-atoning sacrifice on the cross, that propitiation for the forgiveness of sins. You need the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. So all this is going to point towards someone else, someone other is going to have to die in your stead. So every time you have an animal there, you know that the wages of sin is death, and you're going to have to have the blood sprinkled all over the people, all over the altar. You're going to put a portion. Uh, if it's a, a whole burnt offering, you put the whole animal upon the altar. Uh, you put the uh, the, the wheat. Uh, the, uh, you put the wine upon the altar so that it would be consumed as a drink offering. But when it when that portion of the sacrificial meat is placed upon the altar, it makes that a holy food. And so a portion goes on to the altar when it's not a whole burnt offering, just the portion, and a portion goes to the priest to be eaten as a holy food, and then the portion goes to the family who is presenting this as an offering so that they can be certain and sure that their holiness is not something that they do. Uh, this you, you go back to Exodus chapter 31, where God is uh, explaining to the Israelites the reason why you're going to keep the Sabbath day is that you would remember that it's the Sabbath day that God sanctifies, and God's the one who sanctifies you. So that's why you're going to stop working. You're not going to work because then you, you're going to meditate and contemplate about you cannot make yourself holy. It is God who makes you holy. So this is the whole key here of that altar itself is the action of God that is going to make you holy with the sacrificial system. The lamb is the morning sacrifice, the lamb at the close of the day, the evening sacrifice, all pointing to Jesus, who is the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one that bears the sin of the world. And so all these animals that are offered up, they are just putting 
forth the imagery for us, this understanding of we are looking for something better. We want a all availing sacrifice that it puts an end to all of the shedding of blood of animals because the animal shedding blood cannot make us holy in and of itself. It's only through the blood of Jesus that is poured out and shed for us upon the cross. And it's that blood that makes us holy. It's a blood that actually sanctifies us and makes us the holy people of God. Let's add some more verses to the conversation, beginning with 17, and we'll just we'll head down to verse 33. Uh, we won't do those last four verses just yet. Here we go. In the first month in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as Yahweh had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark, and he put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as Yahweh had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside of the veil and arranged the bread on it before Yahweh as Yahweh had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before Yahweh as Yahweh had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as Yahweh had commanded Moses. And he put the, in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And he offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed, as Yahweh had commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. And so Moses finished the work. Right, so we've had uh, many chapters leading up to this moment, uh, all the descriptions of what it will be, all the descriptions of what it's going to be in the construction, and now we have this description of it all being set up. Moses finished the work that God had given him to do, at least in terms of setting up the tabernacle. Um, all right, so that's the rest of that. Um, what, what, what can we pull out of here before we get to the last few verses where God's glory fills this place? Yeah, well, what we want to see here again is this doubling down, that God gives his word to Moses, and then now Moses does. Moses makes in accordance with that word. So this is the direct connection between this is what God says to do, God commands, and Moses fulfills that by putting this into place so that we can be certain and sure that this is what is pleasing to God. Moses is going to be that mouthpiece of God as a prophet sent so that we can be certain and sure we are not hearing uh, somebody's opinion, somebody's agenda that that person is, is putting forth because that person uh, thinks that he's right in his own sight. This is coming from Yahweh himself. Um, one of the things that I would like to just draw also here is that, that I think is just kind of very intriguing is that when you get to verse 31 and we're talking about hands and feet. So when, when you're talking about the hands, uh, this is the hands uh, of, of, of Aaron, uh, of course, of the sons, the priest, the whole priesthood, the Levitical priesthood of Aaron, and they are going to be using these hands 
to distribute, to distribute the gifts of God. And so these hands, just like we have uh, now, is is a, one who is a successor to this office, this office, uh, this preaching office of proclaiming the good news, the good word of Jesus, who is present for us uh, for the forgiveness of sins when we gather as the assembly in the house of God uh, in, in each one of our congregations or around word and sacrament, that the hands are, are used by the pastor to distribute these gifts, uh, the, the gift of the Lord's Supper, or the gift of holy baptism. So these hands are going to be holy to do God's holy work. But the feet, of course, you're you're moving around. So the feet are are the going to be moving in that whole liturgical space uh, where you have the altar and into the holy place and into the holy of holies uh, once a year by the high priest. But but also remember that uh, throughout the ancient world, the understanding of feet is the feet of a messenger. And so, of course, Isaiah picks up on that. And how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings the good news. And when Jesus, of course, on the night in which he's betrayed, he's going to wash the 12 apostles' feet. I mean, so the ones who are going to be sent out, uh, disciples, he's going to wash their feet. They're going to be the bearers of the good news. They're going to be the messengers. And how beautiful are the feet are those who, who proclaim peace, who are publishing this, who are declaring that God and sinner are reconciled because of the work of Jesus, the completed work of Christ on the cross. It is finished. His sacrificial death, he has satisfied the demands of the law, doing all that is required and refraining from all that is forbidden, making amendment for us uh, to uh, to bring us this reconciliation with God once again. So I, I just want to pull out the hands and the feet there uh, with the use uh, of Aaron and his sons. Let's get the last few verses because we're close to the end of our program. And just what a, a beautiful way to end this book. Uh, we have in these last four verses, the glory of the Lord coming in to the to the tabernacle. Here we go. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Uh, what stands out here to me, brother, is that you know there have been touch and go times where God uh, reminds them that He doesn't have to be with them. You know, because of their apostasy, He says, "You know, I'm not going to come with you. I'll send an angel with you, but I'm not coming lest I strike out against you." Uh, but of course, you know, He is 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 bringing them around to understanding that they are his people. He is their God. And just the fact that he sets up in the design of the camp, his space in the midst of them, and they can literally see God in their midst uh, in the ways that he makes himself known, uh, is it must have been incredibly comforting, especially to a people who so quickly forget the great and mighty powerful works of God. Uh, and so he, uh, in mercy, I would say, condescends to them, gives them that 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 incarnate kind of way of, of being amongst them so that they can be reminded and so they know where they can find him too. Uh, what do you think about these last four verses? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, when we're looking at the kavod Yahweh, that's the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament. This is the second person of the Holy Trinity. So this is the pre-incarnate Christ, the one who comes to dwell with his people. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And so you have this understanding of something that it's a glory, the kavod is something that is weighty. It's something that's tangible. So when we talk about God, it's not just uh, this, this abstract idea that God's somewhere. I mean, it's true that God is present everywhere, but the key here is where he's promised to be present for our benefit, for you, for the forgiveness of sins, for uh, you to become his holy people. And this is where the kavod Yahweh is, the glory of the Lord. It's a tangible, It's you have this cloud covering this. So you have that cloud. It's that pillar of fire by night. It's the pillar of cloud by day that you can see this is the place where God is assuring us to go. Once they get into the land of Canaan, they will be tempted. And just like we continue to be tempted in our lands, in our days, trying to worship in the ways of the world, trying to follow after the contemporary styles of worship that that others are doing without God's word, which they think it makes God merciful. It pleases them, so they think it must please God. And you have this assurance that this is the place where you can find God for your benefit. This is the place where you can gather and be gathered around God's instituted means of grace to be certain of God's favor, that God is favorable upon you. I mean, that's the whole benediction that Aaron, when you're you're at the tabernacle itself, I mean, the only words that Aaron is speaking, everything else is visible, but it's only the words of Aaron is that threefold, uh, Yahweh bless you, Yahweh keep you, Yahweh make his face to shine upon you. And so you're assured of peace with God with three times the name of Yahweh is placed upon you, just like in baptism, you have the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that this is the place where Aaron is going to assure you with that word the name of Yahweh placed upon the people, that he names you and he claims you. And so that kavod Yahweh is assuring the people that this is the place, in accordance with God's word, where he promises to be present. Later on at Solomon's temple, you'll have that same assurance where this the cloud, the kavod Yahweh, enters into the, the temple itself to assure the people that this is the place where God promises that his name would dwell in Jerusalem. And in these last days, God promises to meet us in a very special way. We shouldn't uh, mistake the ubiquity of God's presence, the fact that he's everywhere all the time, because that's the nature of God, with, uh, well, we don't need to then gather where he promises to bring us together, which, of course, is, as you've pointed out many times, is in the word and sacrament. And I think well, that's it, a, a, an important And, and I also think that we need to be clear here that it, it's with the incarnation. If you want to right. find God, you've got to find Jesus. That's where God is present. If you want to to be before God, have access to the living God, it is through the Son. And to strive to find him anywhere else is to do no different than what Aaron did when he created the false idol. At least that's what I'm hearing you say, and I agree. Yes. All right, brother. Well, I appreciate you being on the show. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Ketchelmeyer, pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, author of Reading Isaiah with Luther, published by CPH, and another book coming soon. What's that called again? Well, we're still working on the title, but basically we're trying to tie together the creative and redemptive acts of Jesus. Looking forward to that. That'll be great. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. Ah, you are most welcome. 
Well, that's it, folks, for the book of Exodus. Our study through this important text has taken us just three months, but I pray that it has been as rewarding for you as it has been for me. Remember, you can hear any of the episodes you missed by heading over to kfuo.org forward slash thy strong word or search for thy strong word on your favorite podcasting app. Now, for the rest of the month and into the first week of February, we're going to be looking at the only two books of the Bible named after women, Ruth and Esther. So tomorrow, join me and my guest as we dive into Ruth chapter one. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.